Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I am David Rothkopf, and I am still sick, and in the 17th sub-basement uh, isolation ward of the Ministry of Snark, uh, and everybody is fleeing. Rosa Brooks is fleeing in a car. We don't know exactly where she is. Actually, of course, we're the deep state. We know exactly where everybody is, uh, but she is somewhere driving across New Jersey, lost, trying to find uh, shelter. I think, um, uh, and so it should be quite interesting because we'll be joined by Rosa and perhaps periodically her ways. Uh, hi, Rosa. Hi, David. <laughs> um, Grace has all kinds of thoughts on the foreign policy situation. Yeah, no, no, it's great. That's going to be the podcast of the future, which will just be a conversation between three algorithm, you know, driven um, uh, analyst bots. It's going to be fantastic. It's going to be great. It's going to be deep state bots. Yeah, no, yeah, pod save <laughs> the bots. Um well, that's kind of a little bit like that. Now, anyway, we'll skip yeah. over that. And the, that other voice you heard there, uh, resonant um, manly tones, was David Sanger of the New York Times. And somewhere uh, out there, also in Washington, D.C., we have uh, Evelyn Farkas of the German Marshall Fund. See how I remembered that? You're still yes. with the German Marshall Fund, yes. right? Yes, I haven't. Sw- it took me three years to you know, make a switch. So I'll, I'll, you know, in all likelihood, it'll be another three. You'll stay, you'll, you'll stay with them. Did you by the end, any chance, this is totally off of the point, but I, I, I noticed that today, you know, John Bolton made some comment to the effect of they're trying to take a page out of the Marshall plan. Um, and, uh, his point was, you know, that they were going to give money directly to countries, um, and not put them through big international institutions. And I thought, what a maroon, you know? I mean, the Marshall Plan came at the same time as the UN. The the, the World Bank, the International NATO. Bank for Reconstruction and Development, was also part of that whole thing. In fact, it was all part of a multilateralization of U.S. foreign policy, do you think this dude doesn't know what he's talking about? And is the German Marshall Fund going to correct him? Um, well, the German Marshall Fund probably is going to refrain from correcting him. But I'm sure they're doing everything they can to uh, promote international institutionalism every day. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that was, that, a very... was a, that was a tactful answer. I know. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, you know. You don't. You don't want to attack. The I leave it to security. the leadership of GMF of the German Marshall Fund to articulate their 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 counter proposal or their plan to counter <laughs> John Bolton's <laughs> statement. Evelyn just started there. We don't want her to. We don't. We want her to stay there for more than another three hours. <laughs> well, then I then I will I will not ask Evelyn to comment on the president's attack on Mika Brzezinski for using the term "butt boy" about Mike Pompeo. Um, and the defense uh, 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 or the uh, response to Mika Brzezinski's use of the term um, uh, by a whole group of people who took umbrage, including the U.S. ambassador to Germany, Rick Grinnell. Um, does anybody, did, did, does the German Marshall Fund want to comment on Rick no, Grinnell? No, absolutely not. No. <laughs> we're, we're, I think the German Marshall Fund will stay neutral. Uh, Okay. The president of the United States was outraged. You know, the president who referred to one member of Congress as a shit is outraged at Mika Brzezinski using the word butt boy to describe Mike Pompeo. Um, so, David, 
Yeah. Any 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 truth to the rumors that you used to go out drinking with Maria Butina? There's no truth <laughs> to that. There's no truth to that. But but if if you guys you know ever want to go you know try to work up a good novel or movie or something, I'm I'm sure we could invent scenes like this. But as you know, all I do in the evening in Washington is I sit by my computer and I just type and, you know, occasionally consult a few books. I do just what you would want a New York Times reporter covering national security to Wait do. I just sit We and thought type. you were out there reporting. <laughs> oh, it's so time consuming, Rosa. So it's, oh, OK, you can yeah. do it from home. Yeah. yeah. No, don't you understand? Junior reporters go out and report. But when you get to be a senior level reporter like David, you just make stuff up. Oh, is that it? that's what I heard the president said we do. Oh, yeah, that's yeah. true. Well, that, uh, that, that, that's, that's, that's very I'm, consoling. I'm I think I I'm, might become a reporter. I'm yeah. very happy to see, because I knew that would moment would come, that we finally have found an area where David Rothkopf and President Trump are in complete agreement. And it has to do with what reporters do. No, David, did you just say that David was Trump's butt boy? I, wow. I, 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 did not say, I did not say that. I heard, did you hear that, Evelyn? I think I heard that. I might have heard that, yes. Wow, oh, I can't man. believe that the German Marshall Fund is taking a position on the <laughs> use of the term butt Well, you know, sometimes you have to take a stand. That's, I, um, solidarity with Rosa. I, I, I couldn't reject, help myself. I, I reject any position embraced by Donald Trump. Um, in fact, I will go further. <laughs> because he rejects... The New York Times is fake news. I embrace the New York Times. David Sanger, if you were standing here right now, I would embrace you. You would get bubonic plague from me, but you would be embraced. I was about to say, under current <laughs> conditions, let's, let's um, skip that. But you know, you know who else didn't embrace uh, President Trump this afternoon? No, who the, didn't? The Senate of the United States. Yeah, they did not. Yeah. This was actually a remarkable vote. Yes, let's give a little standing ovation to the powerful 5641 rebuke of the president. Tell us, David, talk about it a little bit. So here's what the Senate had to go do. They were asked to, they, they basically had to decide whether or not to withdraw the American military assistance to the Saudis for the war in Yemen, a war for which I can find we have absolutely no strategic interest that I can determine at this point, other than the thought that the Iranians are helping the Houthis, so we're going to go fight the other side of it. But it's a war we never would have started and that the Saudis probably shouldn't have. And of course, uh, what way, drove the vote was the Khashoggi uh, incident. Let, let's, let's, let's throw in there the humanitarian catastrophe and 14 Huge. million people Huge. on the brink of famine heart-rending photos, civilian casualties. Yeah, but the, the, Senate, the Senate missed the, I think this, many, many members of the Senate may have missed that part. They were focusing entirely I, on Khashoggi. Right. I, 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 I think they did. But actually, if well, you Well, but not, not Chris Murphy, who was a long-time advocate right. for getting out of Yemen based on the humanitarian That's concerns. Right. And if you've missed uh, our friend and colleagues, uh, Nick Kristof's columns from his trip to Yemen, which were some of the most heart-wrenching uh, you know, scenes of what American dropped bombs and Saudi dropped bombs uh, are doing there. Um, go back and read them. Uh, no, I think I want to. I, I want to underscore that the work Nick Kristof has been doing from Yemen has been spectacular. He is a great um, columnist for the New York Times. Uh, he may be at the peak of his game right now. And uh, I say all of that despite the fact that he went to college with David Sanger. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and well, you know, then I really have to say it despite the fact. But um, but anyway, what the vote was, was uh, the question of whether or not we would withdraw American military assistance. Both um, uh, Secretary of State Pompeo and Secretary of Defense Mattis were up on the hill not really making a good argument on the military assistance, but basically arguing that we had to continue our intelligence assistance and so forth to the Saudis. Um, they were also talking some about Khashoggi. What's interesting is that there were sort of two votes here. So there was 56 to 41 to basically limit the presidential's, president's ability to to uh, you to send these kinds of this kind of equipment in support of the Saudis. So that was number one. 
But the second was a sense of the Senate, non-binding, to hold um, MBS, Mohammed bin Salman, uh, personally responsible for the Khashoggi killing. And there were some pretty amazing quotes that came along on this. So that head of the Senate Foreign Relations uh, Committee, Bob Corker, said, just listen to these words from the floor. I absolutely believe that if the crown prince came before a jury here in the United States of America, he would be convicted guilty in under 30 minutes. That's for the killing of Choji. He said, I absolutely believe he directed it. I believe he monitored it. And I believe he is responsible for it. That's a little bit different from the president's comments. Oh, the CIA has a feeling that he might be, you know, somehow involved. What's been remarkable about this is that the president cannot differentiate between support of Saudi Arabia and support of the crown prince. They think it's all one. And I, frankly, I just don't see that. Well, actually, they've, they've you know gone a step further with uh, uh, Pompeo uh, actually uh, uh, saying that the evidence was not all in yet still. In the 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 current news cycle, saying things like that, but Rosa, I wonder as as you uh, contemplate this, uh, you, you you probably saw the story uh, from the New York Times a couple days ago about uh, the intervention of Jared Kushner, his closeness to MBS, uh, and his actively working with MBS um, to sort of ride out the storm around this and to help him cover up this murder. And this Senate vote comes after that. The Senate, which is not noted for its spine and stance against the United States, which makes this all the more uh, remarkable and I think should make it uh, more uncomfortable for the White House on this on this track. Well, we'll, we'll see, right? I mean, the, the problem here is that the Senate by itself obviously does not have the power to actually restrict funding all by itself or, or do much of anything all by itself. And this particular uh, initiative is, is, as far as I can tell, has about, you know, somewhere between zero and 0. 0.0001 chance of uh, getting through the House. Um, so in that sense, it, it is purely symbolic. It's, well, you know, but, it's, 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 it's until it's, the next Congress. Yeah, right. it's, until it's, the, until it's the got a very good, right. it's, it's but certain to, to pass it in the Senate again. Uh, yeah. Right. And it's not, well, I don't know. That's a good question. I'd love, I'd love to get your thoughts. 56 to 41. I think you might get it through the Senate again. And on, but, but, on uh, January 4th, you, you can get, get it through it. the house. Do we think, I will, do you think we'll have enough, the Democrats would have enough to get it through the house, even after January though? I'm, yes. I'm, I'm, I'm yes. yes. Okay. Well, yeah. we'll see. Uh, I hope you're right. Um, for the time being, obviously, you know, it's not going to change anything for Donald Trump because purely symbolic rebukes change nothing for Donald Trump in general. Um, you know, so how this, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit surprised. I mean, I'm pleasantly surprised. Um, as, as you know, I've been sort of taking the position, you know, everybody's going to make a lot of noise about how terrible it all is, but they're not actually going to do anything. Um, you know, maybe I may I may be wrong. Um, waiting to see what happens here. Um, well, you're almost never wrong, but I think in this particular case, something is happening here that is an aberration from the norm, Evelyn. And I think one of the things that's so striking about it is uh, that it's also an aberration from the way the U.S. has treated Saudi Arabia and the way the Senate has treated the president and so forth. And it shows how deeply the Khashoggi uh, murder has affected public opinion in the U.S. Um, and, you know, I think that is compounded by the fact that you can't be as outraged as everybody is about the Khashoggi murder and about its cover-up and turn away from Yemen, which is, of course, many, many tens of thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands of times more egregious than the Khashoggi murder um, and involves the death of many, many innocent civilians, the devastation of a country. Uh, and by the way, let's just throw in 
revelations that the United States has been supporting this war sort of off the books, without agreements, doing refueling, doing a whole bunch of other things uh, in this particular case. And I think, uh, and I'd be interested in, in, in your opinion on this, uh, and certainly not as the opinion of the German Marshall Fund, but in your opinion, <laughs> Um, that, uh, uh, you know, what this bodes for the future of the U.S.-Saudi relations or U.S.-Gulf relations, because in, in my sense, it, it, it's, it suggests that the, the kind of the free lunch is, is over uh, and this Congress is starting to be willing to stand up to Trump in important ways. Yeah, I agree with you. I think th this today was really interesting because there were three things that happened that signal kind of a turning point and a softening in Republican support for the president. The first one is this Kosoji one or this 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 vote that occurred in the Senate this afternoon, which again was spurred on by the outrageousness, the 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 just like in your face nature of the way the Saudis went about slaughtering this you know, U.S. resident journalist who works worked for the Washington Post, right? I mean, that was something that members of Congress could not ignore. You have always have had a tradition of Republicans and Democrats, different Republicans and different Democrats, uniting across the aisle and highlighting human rights. The, the members changed over time, but there was always a, a handful of senators from both sides of the aisle who highlighted this. They, they, of course, were people who would speak out about the Russian assassinations using polonium and, um, and chemical weapons. And so this really was no different from that. And that then allowed, that provided the opening for people like Senator Murphy to say, hey, and also there's this Yemen thing. <laughs> so, I mean, I do think that the, without the Khashoggi thing, eventually the Yemen thing would have been too much because there were... Uh, you know, a number of atrocities over time that were piling up and they were, you know, there a lot of them involved children, <laughs> either through famine or directly through bombing. And so I think eventually we were going to probably cut our assistance um, to Yemen, uh, you know, and or the Saudis were going to have to bring it to a, a halting break at some point. But of course, we didn't see any evidence that would happen before the Khashoggi killing. So that's the first thing, you know, today's vote. But at the same time, we have Rubio saying that he's reserving judgment on Trump's alleged connection to the Cohen case. And as we all know today, you know, Michael Cohen was sentenced to three years jail time for um, tax, fraud, tax fraud, for lying to the FBI. And well, I think it was the, the charges were on the tax fraud, if I'm correct, and the banking fraud. But in any event, um, he also lied to the FBI. And um, on the, but anyway, it was related to campaign finance and what he did for President Trump at the direction of individual one, which is President Trump. So here you have Rubio saying, I'm reserving judgment, right? That's the softening. And then the third thing was that everybody expected the House to pass, to try to pass a budget today because Trump's been, President Trump's been screaming about the need for $5 billion for this wall. And of course, the Democrats were up there meeting with him the other day. And you know, making it very clear that their compromise position was something like 1.2 million, so or a billion rather. Um, the reality is that um, the House could have passed something just based on their majority in the House, but they knew that the Senate wasn't going to pass anything. And so I think because they need Democrats to do it, those three things signal a softening in the president's sway over Congress. And so then getting back to the U.S.-Saudi relationship, what does it mean? Well, this, the president wants things to continue as normal. He wants arms sales to continue. He, he wants, um, I, I imagine, the Trump-Kushner-Saudi you know, House relationship to continue. He wants, um, he wants to continue the U.S. foreign policy, which is now radically aligned with Saudi Arabia um, over all, all other countries practically in the region and, and almost absurdly um, anti-Iran in the sense that it's not looking at U.S. national interests and balancing things properly. And Congress, I think, is going to say no. <laughs> and, and so we'll have another debate about what are we doing about Iran? Because, you know, we scrapped the nuclear deal, Mr. President. You told us you were going to find another way to put Iran back in the box. But guess what? Iran did a missile test this week or late last week, and they haven't changed anything else yet in their posture with regard to the nuclear program, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a possibility that they could. And, and then of course you have North Korea and other things. So I think um, it is interesting that the Senate is now kind of finding a little bit of a backbone. We'll see over time if it becomes something more meaningful. 
Well, it's also, uh, you know, kind of a valedictory for Bob Corker and some of those guys who are leaving. But David, you know, you were in the midst, I think, as we uh, kicked this off and as you rightly kicked this off, of talking about some of the other things that were part of what the Senate was doing, including uh, the fact that they 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 approved a resolution specifically holding the crown prince responsible. Now, resolution's not binding, but sure. uh, again, it's a kind of profound rebuke of the president and a stunning, stunning rebuke from the United States of America for the stated position of this ally. Uh, and and the, the, the vote also represented the Senate's first use ever of the War Powers Act, which you know, decades after the War Powers Act was enacted. So it, 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 it really is kind of resonant on several uh, levels. And I was just wondering whether you wanted to comment on either of those. Sure. The War Powers Act part is really interesting because it has basically been a, a, a dead letter since it came into, into being. I mean, uh, there's been presidents have acted militarily and paid the least heed to the War Powers Act. On occasion, they would give the, you know, uh, notices that you're supposed to go do, but it's never really been used to rein in uh, a a president until this act. So that that was significant. But the other interesting part was that the president was seeking to politicize uh, the intelligence about the Khashoggi killing, and particularly the part that links this to MBS. And um, he was trying to fuzz it up and say, we can't tell. And that was why they sent uh, both uh, Secretary Pompeo and Secretary Mattis out to say there was no smoking gun. Well, what the Senate is saying is, yeah, there's a smoking gun. You may not have actually heard him issue orders, but we certainly have seen the evidence that suggests that he was directly responsible for the killing. And that raises a really interesting question. How do you now have the crown prince come on a state visit in the future to the United States after the U.S. Senate has declared that they believe he is a killer? How do you send a president out to go meet him and do business as usual? The president will try to go do that. They'll try to ignore what's happened here. But it's pretty remarkable. Can anybody else on you know in our group here name the last time that we have declared the leader of an ally, not an adversary, not a Saddam Hussein or someone like that, the leader of an ally, we have declared him in a sense of the Senate resolution to be a killer um, I, while the alliance is still in, in, in full swing. It's, it's, it's really kind of unprecedented. And, you know, uh, at the same time as all of this was happening, uh, Rosa, um, a story broke in the Daily Beast that the next phase or a next phase of the Mueller investigation is going to look at Saudi and other Gulf ties uh, to uh, to the uh, 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 the the, uh, the team Trump team Trump uh, in the campaign and trying to influence. Uh, the campaign that includes the the UAE through the Seychelles meetings and and other things like that. And I and I have to say parenthetically, we have t- talked about this in the past. But uh, the other part of our organization, the consulting part, does do some uh, work on uh, unrelated issues, issues about women's empowerment and green energy and so forth, with the UAE. So I, I do want to mention that because I don't want people to you know, think we're, we're, we're sweeping it under the rug. But I would say, having said that for the purposes of full disclosure, the, the, the relationship between the United States and the Gulf, the Saudis, the UAE, the others is going to change as Mueller goes deeper into this. And in the wake of what happened today. Yeah, I, I think that's right, David. Um, um, and I think that you know, to some extent, as with all of the revelations about the number of U.S. individuals and entities that were not bothering to, to comply with the requirements to register as foreign agents um, and all the many foreign governments that were actively uh, working with U.S. individuals and companies to try to affect U.S. law and policy uh, on the Hill and elsewhere, 
you know, that, that one of the things that the Mueller investigations is, is surfacing is something that we all sort of knew, but, but has not come out in the open, um, uh, you know, which is how much of that activity either borders on or clearly crosses the line into straight out illegal, um, straight out forms of bribery and, and corruption and bl- blackmail. Uh, as part of influence campaigns. Um, so, I, you know, who knows what specific details are, are going to surface. Um, but I, but I, think, I think, number one, yes, you're absolutely right that as, as details surface, it may very well fundamentally change the U.S.'s relationship with uh, Gulf states going forward, particularly in a next administration, um, whether it's a Democratic or a Republican administration. Um, and particularly if it's not a Donald Trump administration, which I'm happy to say is looking a little bit less likely today than it was uh, two weeks ago. Um, but but the but the other thing I think that this is surfacing um, is that the the Department of Justice, in many ways, for for decades now, has kind of stopped bothering to go after white collar crime. Uh, um, you know, part of the reason that when you think about mass incarceration in the United States and uh, why it's disproportionately poor people and minorities in our prisons uh, is because, you know, they're poor people because they're poor, tend to be out where you can see them. They're on the streets, et cetera. Their, their crimes are ones that can be seen uh, by cameras and so forth, whereas the, the crimes of the more affluent, so-called white-collar crime, uh, tend to be, you know, in nice nice office buildings with fancy receptionists and so forth. And it takes resources to go after them. And for decades, the U.S. government has decided we're not going to bother to go after white collar crime. I think that the Mueller, the Mueller uh, investigation is surfacing so many sordid details that my hope, at least, is that it's going to inspire a new generation of federal prosecutors and state level prosecutors for some of this stuff uh, to, to, to say, we've got to go after these guys, you know, because it, it's becoming absolutely clear that there's been a, a rampant level of criminality that is very, very widespread. Well, I think it also brings up another part of the Mueller investigation and another sort of element of this whole thing that is really, really significant and and doesn't really get discussed enough. And that is the world saw Trump's behavior during the campaign knew who Trump was, saw Trump's relationship with the Russians. This was being reported during the campaign. It's not some shocking revelation that occurred after the campaign. And if you have been a listener to Deep State Radio, you know that people have told us long, long, long ago, in the weeks after the uh, Trump election, that people in the Obama administration were seeing uh, traffic that suggested that countries were looking at this going, hmm, how do we take advantage of this transactional president? How do we position ourselves uh, in a way that, uh, you know, we can gain influence given the nature of his character? Which, by the way, you know, countries are, are liable to do. But it sort of suggested that the for sale sign was up on U.S. foreign policy or the for rent sign was up on U.S. foreign policy uh, and that the signals that Trump sent with regard to Russia were more pernicious than simply selling out the country to its greatest enemy because they were also suggesting to the rest of the world here was the way to the heart of the United States government. And by the way, that's just as it's worked out. Evelyn? It's the way to the head of the United States government, which is scary. Um, A head that doesn't have enough heart, but that's another topic. Um, Yes, no, I mean, absolutely. I think this is the problem. You know, we have a president who's transactional. He's a businessman. He doesn't understand the whole issue of American values and American interests and the fact that American interests are also intertwined with our values. And so the way he operated and the way all the inexperienced, greedy, corrupt people around him operated, meaning the people that he brought with him largely from the campaign and from the transition, was was identical to the president. And then it took all the other brave people who are surrounding him, who are experts on government, who have government experience, whether they're you know, cabinet officials or or bureaucrats to try to push back against this um, venality and 
you know, um, wrongheaded policy, et cetera. Um, so, you know, I don't, I don't know what to say. I mean, I think of the poor NATO allies, you know, who are wondering what, what is Trump going to do with NATO? I mean, they can't, you know, they're, they're, they're democracies. They're not corrupt. They can't give him a check, you know? Um, certainly NATO itself can't give him a check. So I, I think, um, you know, we'll see now what Congress does. And, and to the extent that, you know, Bob Mueller's investigation highlights for the world and, and well, the world, first and foremost for Congress, what's been happening, um, it will be useful. What's, what's interesting, though, what I would like to know is how much Congress was witting and possibly involved in the money game. So there are a lot of strands of this investigation. And, you know, there's all the influence peddling with the, with the people close to Trump, you know, his family, basically, his, his organization. But then there's also this Maria Butina story with the NRA funneling about $30 million into either Trump or they also funneled money to Republicans, other Republicans. So the question is, because we don't have insight into the NRA's money trail yet, unless Robert Mueller gets it and provides it to the public, you know, how many other Republicans benefited wittingly or unwittingly? And does this explain, in part at least, um, the reticence on the on the part, especially of House House Republicans, to stand up to Trump and to support Mueller. Uh, David, can I just take a shot for a second of what the Mueller thing about the Middle East, if it exists, might be? Sure. So, what do we know about Mike Flynn in his early days, his his twenty four glorious days as National Security Advisor? That he was deeply involved in a plan that he had been pushing along during the transition and before the transition to try to expand the number of nuclear reactors in the Arab states in the Middle East. It's a big business plan. It involved the Saudis. It involved this effort to get a what's called a one-two-three agreement like the UAE has with Saudi Arabia, which is basically a number under the Atomic Energy Act, but would be the rules under which the United States could sell nuclear equipment, nuclear power generation equipment. You mean I've UAE worked. has with America? That like the UAE has with the United States. We yeah, have, sorry, uh, you said Saudi. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, and the, so the idea would be that the Saudis would get an agreement similar to the UAE's. And um, so this was all in the air. And there are all kinds of questions about what commitments, if any, the United States or the incoming administration may have been making, and to what degree you had people who were acting in their transition or official capability who also had or may have had in the, in the past some uh, business connections to this. And of course, we don't know all of what it was that Mike Flynn cooperated on, because a lot of it was redacted out of the sentencing agreement. But one guess is it has to do with all this stuff. Yeah. And, you know, what's going to happen as this has happened is bits and pieces of this are going to get meted out through the year ahead. And uh, the, the relationships that are involved there are going to feel increasing amounts of pressure from the public uh, associated with this investigation from the Congress, as they see this is happening, and uh, it's 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 just simply going to get worse and worse. And of course, if revelations come out about Saudi business ties to the Trump Organization or Saudi business ties to Kushner or UAE business ties to the Trump Organization or any other such business ties, you're going to end up with um, relationships that are going to be complicated by this. Uh, impeded by this, undone by this, uh, possibly for for some number of years. Um, Rose, I hear in the background some rushing noise. Have you driven into a river by any chance? I just um, no, but uh, I, I, David, I'm, I'm if I seem a little distracted, it's because I'm on my uh, least favorite stretch of road in the entire United States, which is the Cross Bronx Expressway. Wow. Um, it's a uh, it's very frightening. I'm currently and I think and, we've lost and lost Rosa off the edge. Of the Hello, can you guys yes. hear me? 
Yeah, yeah no, that we, I was, that, that was, that was a tunnel. I was in some sort of terrible tunnel. Wow. The tunnel of death. <laughs> there were stalactites and stalagmites growing out of the floor and ceiling and Mm. Are you on your way to New England by any chance? <laughs> no, I'm worse. I'm on my way to Long Island. Wow, that is worse. <laughs> <laughs> and and I don't All right, quite easy know there. how to get I'm there. I'm from New York, and I don't hey. quite know how to get there. That's the real problem. So hey. so carry on. Talk quietly. Uh, you know, Ro- Rosa, where I grew up, Long Island was a foreign policy problem. <laughs> <laughs> where are you from, David? <laughs> I'm from the other side, the other side of Long Island Sound. That would that would be uh, Westchester. West and Chester. and Long Island was what it was was you know sort of what you what you went to when you uh, you were going off to like visit the Rothkoff family, right? Yeah, no, well, excuse me. I, we were in, we were in New Jersey, <laughs> and oh, we yeah. thought we thought Long Island was kind of so Tony, just... and we looked up to it. <laughs> I was from Westchester too, but I'll just leave it at that. I just won't, I won't, I won't contribute. Guys, 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 Waze wants me to take the exit for the Whitestone Bridge and Google wants me to take the exit for the Throgsneck Bridge. Do you have a view on this? Well, since since Google bought Waze, they really, they're going to have to switch this out. They should get it together. (laughs) They they really should get it together. Um, um, I'm, I'm facing a quandary. But my, my advice, my advice is always go with Waze. Always go with Waze. Okay. Yeah. Waze, All right. Waze, Waze, Waze is better. Google is more, uh, it, 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 it works with more different kinds of hardware, but Waze tends to be, the, the algorithm tends to be a little better. Anyway, why are we talking about this? Um, well, I guess it's... <laughs> it's part well. of, why are you talking about this? Yeah, good point. Well, I have a fever, so I just wanted directions. I just want directions. David, how does that differ from most other broadcasts that we do? Aren't you no. usually in a fever at some yeah. point? In, in, some, in, in some way or another. Well, let me but let me put us sort of back on track with this a second here, Evelyn. Another thing that happened today, and I know you're about to go on MSNBC or something to talk about this, and I think we need to talk about it, is that there were actually um, uh, there was actually progress on Yemen in Sweden. And there were discussions that uh, seem to have led to when we will see ceasefire that may have some humanitarian consequences in Hedaya and elsewhere. And I thought perhaps you should talk a little bit about the significance of that. Well, so I confess that I am a little bit behind the curve and I didn't realize um, that they have, I guess, a partial truce. I'm just looking quickly on my phone here. Um, but Look, I mean, the, I think if, if, if the international community in the form of, you know, UN and other organizations can help bring an end to this, it would also be really kind of a shot in the arm for all of them. Uh, throughout the war in Yemen and the war in Syria, you've seen UNHCR and other UN agencies and, of course, the, the UN Secretary General try to bring aid and assistance in the case of the former institutions and then in the case of the Secretary General try to broker peace agreements. And, you know, unfortunately, the, the UN and its, and its functional institutions are only as good as the leaders of the Security Council uh, allow it to be. You know, if they, if they use the UN properly and if they empower the UN and the Secretary General, everything is, works as it was supposed to, more or less. If they don't, which is the case more recently, and they ignore the UN institutions, then people continue to suffer and war goes on and the truces don't hold. So if there is some kind of truce, that would be useful. You know, a lot of the recent fighting was around the um, the big port um, and the, the uh, community, the, the aid community was up in arms because of the fact that they were not able to, they were worried about getting obviously goods into the, to the people who are suffering through that port. So if they can get a ceasefire, that's encouraging. Ultimately, you know, it may be the first step, that plus the Senate decision, the first step towards bringing this war to a close. But I mean, it, it, I, I, get, I get worked up about, you know, Yemen, Syria, Myanmar, the, the whole host of humanitarian catastrophes that the world has largely ignored and allowed a lot of brutal regimes to get away with because we just lack the proper leadership, frankly speaking, here in Washington. You know, our president doesn't care. 
Um, and, and in the other capitals, there's equal, I don't know if it's lack of caring, but certainly disarray. And when the U.S. doesn't lead, it seems others are incapable of taking up the mantle, sadly. So, you know, I, I, if, if this is a turning point, you know, if today is a turning point in addressing these kind of humanitarian crises in these civil wars, then, then I will, you know, I will be heartened. Though I have to say there have been many truces called in Syria and in the Yemen context, there have also been similar agreements. So it remains to be seen. Well, it, it, we can't anticipate, uh, obviously, how th- agreements like that will turn out. Uh, clearly, this day is extremely significant and, um, and, and long overdue, both with regards to Yemen and with regards to the Khashoggi case. And, uh, I, you know, I think it is something that should be very worrisome uh, for the Gulf states involved, uh, and hopefully it will change their behavior, uh, because the thing that we need to be concerned about the most are the lives of the innocents in a place like Yemen. I don't think uh, it's going to be very easy for the Saudis to simply snap back to the relationship that they had, uh, given a unanimous declaration by the Senate of the United States that their crown prince was uh, involved in this murder. Uh, and I think they're going to have to have and seem to be, you know, having some uh, serious discussions about how they address that. Uh, and this guy needs to be brought to justice. I personally don't think he can continue as the crown prince uh, without doing enormous damage on an ongoing basis to Saudi Arabia. We've only got a minute or two left. I know, David, you have like a afternoon of holiday parties that you have to go to. I wish uh, it was that good. Try an afternoon of meetings. Uh, well, OK. Um, but I do want to just give us one minute here at the very end to talk a little bit about the other ongoing elements of these sagas in the United States, both the Maria Butina thing and uh, the revelation that's sort of breaking late in the afternoon that we're doing this, that apparently Donald Trump was in the room with David Pecker of American Media and uh, Michael Cohn in August of 2015 when they discussed how do we, you know, provide hush money to kill the various, you know, uh, what were called during the uh, Clinton administration, it's some unpleasant term about uh, women eruptions, but uh, the, 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 the reality is uh, he's more in the middle of this than all of his denial tweets seem to be indicating. Uh, uh, and I just, you know, I want to give you and Rosa and Evelyn a last word on either Butina or these other revelations. You know, my guess is in the end that Butina is going to be an interesting sideshow about this. And um, it was nice to see that the Justice Department um, backed away from some of the more salacious of their um, early charges. I don't think she was a central player to this. You have basically two different sort of major cases underway here. One of them is... What was the president's role in silencing the two women? That would be Stormy Daniels and Karen McDougal. And there, it seemed like there wasn't much of a case when the testimony was only coming from um, uh, from Michael Cohen, his former lawyer. And let's step back for a moment and just consider the enormity of the fact that the president's lawyer is going to jail for three years. I mean, you know, how often does that happen? But we now have thanks to the good people who um, publish uh, the National Enquirer, which I know David never misses an issue. Um, uh, uh, We have their testimony that despite the fact that they told the Wall Street Journal none of this money was intended to quash the story, they said in the plea and in the agreement they reached with the um, Justice Department that all of this money was meant to keep the story from appearing and thus get in the way of the election of Donald Trump. So now he's got two separate participants in this that the president has to go argue against. And the only thing that's protecting him right now seems to me to be the Justice Department rule that you don't indict sitting presidents. Because if he was not sitting president, I think there's a good chance he would get indicted on this the way John Edwards got indicted on, on, on this. Edwards was acquitted under a different fact set. The money wasn't paid by, by him. And um, I'll jump in on this if I can. Um, you know, I, I spend a fair, as, maybe not as much time as David spends at the holiday on the holiday party circuit in green rooms, but I do. I've see- seen you at every <laughs> single one. Come on, <laughs> yes. 
<laughs> but I, but I, okay, okay, I do like a good holiday. A lampshade on your head. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, that I will not admit to. Right but, by the punch bowl, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, but I do, but it is interesting because I, I often ask those former prosecutors who were in the green room with me before we go on the air or after we go on, you know, what do they think is going to happen? And, you know, my sense all along has been that there has been coordination between the Trump campaign and the Russians. And, um, and whether Mueller could, you know, what kind of evidence he had was the open question. And over time, it's become clear to me that his evidence is better than most of us expected, that he has some good evidence. And then there's also the corruption and this campaign finance, you know, um, violations. And so I, I've asked, um, you know, I periodically ask these prosecutors, what do you think is going to happen? And so sometimes, you know, a couple months ago, they said, Indictments for sure for for Stone, for Roger Stone, for Don Trump Jr., for Jared Kushner. And then the latest question I asked um, Glenn Kirshner, a former prosecutor who's worked with um, Robert Mueller, what what does he think is going to happen? And he said, and it was kind of an open-ended question like that. And he said, there he will indict. And I said, he will indict? And he said, he will indict the sitting president. Meaning, then his explanation was that what what is more consequential in terms of an attack on America than a foreign government attacking our democracy, meddling in our election, more than meddling, attacking us, right? Foreign intervention and corruption. You know, both of these two things together, the, the Trump, all of these corrupt things that he did, campaign finance uh, violations, et cetera, plus this foreign interference are, are two things that really go to the heart and soul of America. And so for someone like Bob Mueller to not indict the sitting president, I mean, when would someone indict a sitting president, I guess, was Glenn's thinking. Well, Rosa, if you're still on the road, let me let me turn to you on that. I'm on a bridge now. I don't know what bridge I'm on, but I'm on a bridge. Um, But but so so here's one one other piece of this complicated picture. uh, my Georgetown colleague, Neil Cotyall, had Neil made the argument and Neil was involved in, in as a young man in drafting the uh, statute uh, that authorized the creation of, of Mueller. So he's pretty, pretty much an expert on this. I think it's fair to say. Uh, and he made the argument that, yes, it's Justice Department policy not to indict a sitting president, but that the special counsel statute permits the special counsel to request authorization to issue an indictment. And that depending on who is supervising Mueller, which is actually unclear at this moment, um, and it's also unclear who will be supervising Mueller, you know, in in a few weeks or or months. Um, But depending on who's supervising Mueller, uh, Mueller, if Mueller feels that he's not going to get anywhere, even if Mueller doesn't want to actually indict Trump out of deference to the existing Justice Department policy, that Mueller may decide to ask for permission to indict Trump on the theory that the answer to the request will be no, but the special counsel authorizes Mueller if if indictment is refused by his superior, the, the attorney general or, or designee of the attorney general. Uh, that's when the special counsel is authorized to then provide a report to both houses of Congress. So in other words, from Mueller's perspective, even if he chooses, even if he doesn't actually want to indict the president, he has an incentive to ask to indict the president, knowing it will almost certainly be re- refused if it's certainly if it's Whitaker or mm-hmm. Barr, uh, because that's what then enables him to submit a detailed report to Congress. Um, so how will this play out? Nobody knows, but it's going to be it's certainly going to be an interesting few months. Yes. And, and of course, we should remind everybody that Mueller is not the only um, uh, actor in the position to potentially right. other, indict other- other jurisdictions are involved. Right, and other jurisdictions might take this action. And uh, I wrote something about this that some of you may have seen out there in the Twitterverse, uh, suggesting I, you know, uh, have come to a view that I think that, that the uh, the right to indict a president actually exists quite clearly. Uh, but Lawrence Tribe, uh, the uh, Harvard Law School professor, uh, wrote a very compelling piece, which actually goes a step further and suggests that that the Constitution actually uh, compels such an indictment in a case such as this. Uh, we'll see. 
but clearly one of the things that's been happening in the last few days and weeks and months uh, is a case has been mounting and increasingly it is clear that at the center of that case uh, is Donald Trump um, uh, and that it goes far, far beyond hush money um, all, all as sorted as those revelations have been. Uh, well, uh, this has been another uh, great uh, episode of Deep State Radio, which included, uh, uh, you know, the drama of Rosa uh, wending her way across um, the Bronx, uh, which is yeah, a little the frightening. The barren wastelands of the Bronx. Yeah. And now I'm in the barren wastelands of some other place. Um, no, Long Island. If you've Long taken Island, either of those two bridges, you're on Long Island oh, now. Oh, how so. about that? Well, there yeah. you go. Yeah. Good. So, so uh, you'll be in a traffic jam in any moment actually, is my calculation. Um, uh, but uh, we wish you well, and we, we look forward to having you uh, back uh, next uh, week. Thank you very much, Evelyn. Thank you very much, David. Thanks to all of you out there in Deep State Radio uh, land. Uh, go to deepstateradionetwork.com to buy uh, all the Christmas gifts you need You know, at the Deep State swag store, including those fantastic limited edition Deep State um, uh, Christmas ornaments. They're actually Ministry of Snark Christmas ornaments, which you get if you become a member. Um, and we'd like you to become a member because that lets us do more of our podcasting. Listen to our new podcast, uh, Washington for Beautiful People, which has some amazing guests on it right now, hosted by uh, Emily Brandwin, which is in your feed, and our weekly podcast, National Security Magazine, which is interviews with uh, uh, top national security thinkers. This week, our interview was with David Sanger um, uh, as we talked about nuclear policy, and we've got some great people coming in that regard, too. Lots of new stuff on the horizon. Uh, join us next week as we get close to the holidays and we enter into some of our exciting holiday show territory and uh, for which uh, uh, the whole gang will be here. Uh, in, in the meantime, I... Uh, uh, wish all of you well, and I hope that between now and next week, I recover from bubonic plague. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.